we were chatting and he said, well, you've got to realize that because he was imprisoned, eventually the United States and Isaac sued the Turkish government when, and then he used that money to bring the first group of Assyrians to North Battleford. Hello, friends. Welcome back to the Assyrian Podcast. My name is Odessa. We hope you have missed us as much as we've missed you. We also hope you've had a chance to catch up on some previous episodes you may have missed along the way and are ready for today's episode 145 with Sarah Bennett. Sarah is the great-great-granddaughter of Dr. Isaac Adams, who is the first Assyrian to lead a mass migration of Assyrians to North America from Iran in the early 1900s, first to Saskatchewan, Canada, and later California, USA. Growing up, I always wondered how Assyrians ended up in Turlock of all places in California. For context, Turlock is a relatively small city in central California with a population of about 73,000. After being directed to Dr. Ariane Ishaya's book titled Familiar Faces in Unfamiliar Places, Assyrians in the California Heartland from 1911 to 2010, I learned about Dr. Adam's story and was so amazed to learn about the journey to and ultimately settlement of Assyrians in mini-Assyria, aka Turlock. Thanks to the internet, I came across Sarah's profile as she mentioned she was related to Dr. Adams in a comment somewhere on Instagram. I reached out to her about doing this interview and was so happy to geek out with her on this migration story because it is really an impressive one that shaped the future of Assyrians in the West and gives a glimpse into modern Assyrian history. What is especially amazing to me is Sarah's passion and connectedness to her heritage despite her family being in the United States for multiple generations. She truly inspires me and makes me hopeful for the future. Okay, one thing I wanted to clarify is there were a few times in the interview where I called North Battleford, North Battlefield, and so I just want to clarify that it is indeed pronounced North Battleford. I hope my fellow Canadians don't revoke my Canadian card. On a more serious note though, on behalf of the Assyrian podcast team, We'd like to extend our condolences to the Tamras family on the passing of one of our loyal listeners, Isha Tamras. Isha was always supportive of the podcast initiatives and made sure to comment and interact with our posts and we'll miss interacting with him very much. May he rest in peace. Support for this week's episode of the Assyrian Podcast is brought to you by Tony Caligarakis and the Injury Lawyers of Illinois and New York. If you know anyone that has been in a serious accident, please reach out to Tony Caligarakis. Tony has been recognized as a top 40 lawyer and a rising star by Super Lawyers Publication and has obtained multiple multi-million dollar awards. Tony can be reached at InjuryRights.com or 847-982-9516. This episode is also sponsored by the Yoshana Partners, a husband and wife real estate team. Are you considering purchasing or selling a home in Arizona or California? John and Rita are available to help make your next real estate decision into a seamless transaction. Contact the Ashanas at 209-968-9519 and get to know them a little bit more by checking out their website, the Oshana Partners, that's O-U-S-H-A-N-A, partners.com. Now, without further ado, here is Sarah Bennett.
Well, Sarah, thank you so much for uh, agreeing to be on the Assyrian podcast. I, for one, am very, very excited to uh, have this conversation with you. And I'm so glad that I was able to find you on Instagram and connect. <laughs> That's the beauty of the internet. Thank you. Why don't we start with the story of your great, great grandfather, Dr. Isaac Adams. Who was Dr. Isaac? Let's do it. Okay, so he was born in Sangar, which was, I think, approximately 25 miles or so outside of Ermia, a smaller village, in 1872 on November 28th. And he spoke five languages. They learned that in school growing up. So he spoke Syriac, Chaldean, Turkish, Persian. And then I'm actually unclear how much English he eventually spoke. I would assume, you know, it was passable considering all of his travels. But that was never confirmed, and it doesn't seem like anyone in my family really knows. But that just blows my mind, too, at that time. I mean, showing me up. I only speak English. I speak very broken French and very broken Spanish. So something to aspire to. But, yeah, he grew up there. He had three brothers. I don't think any sisters. And his father and mother lived on a ranch there. When he was about six years old, he had a relatively good upbringing and everything. So he writes in his books. That's another thing. So he was an author. He wrote two books that were bestsellers at that time eventually, but just about his life. And I'll get into that a little bit later, but that's just so amazing to have from a family perspective too. everything that was written down and being able to hear these stories, to read them, and then people reading them off. You know, my great grandma would tell these stories over and over again. So I feel like when I was preparing for this, even it was really easy for me because I just grew up hearing these, but no, I mentioned all of that because when he was six years old, his father at that time, too, as you probably know, a lot of Assyrian men would go for work in Russia or even as far as the States, just kind of finding wherever they could find work and then also to support their families. Because as we know at this time currently, but unfortunately during that period, too, there were a lot of village raids and things that were just really making the area unstable. So a lot of the men would go out and try to seek work um, to support their families and eventually try to move them. And so that was the case here with my great, great, great grandfather. He went to Russia with some of his friends to seek work. Long story short, they had a passport that it actually covered three people. I didn't know that that was a thing at the time. Mm -hmm. But one of the people that were on that mission, one of the men had to go back. Someone in his family was sick. So then the passport reflected that there were three men coming from Ermia. And there were only two at the time when they got stopped at a checkpoint. So they assumed that they were spies, made up this whole story, mm -hmm. stole all their money, and ended up exiling them to Siberia. So you're six years old. You have three other brothers. All of a sudden, your mom is a single mom, and they had to support their family, and they never saw their dad again. Do you know how the news ended up coming back to him? I don't. And I wondered the same thing. I was thinking that the other day when I was reading through it, and I was talking through it with my mom. A lot of these stories from that time that's in this book and just throughout his life, I'm like, how did that information travel? Because I feel like even in this day and age, texting, calling, Instagram, still a lot. I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised. You know what I mean? Right. So somehow they figured out that in those two men had, I mean, I hopefully... They lived out their days peacefully, we can hope, but who knows? But Dr. Isaac, from that point on, never heard from never or heard saw from his dad him. again. Yeah. Wow. So sad. So all of a sudden, you know, you're six and you have to help your mom care for your family. So they did a lot of agriculture. 
work, trying to find odd jobs here and there. But naturally at that time then too, their family didn't have any protection. And eventually really soon after the Lord of the village came and seized all their assets and their farm. So they had to move in. I'm going to butcher this. So there's another nearby village, Wazarawa. Yeah. Anyways, they had relatives there. They had to go stay with an aunt. Mom's looking for work. The kids are kind of just all over the place. And he writes in his book that that was a turning point for him because he didn't enjoy being there. He missed his home. He missed his father. But then because of that, he got really connected with the Presbyterian mission. So there was a turning point. I think he was 12 or 13 where he started wanting, you know, expressing an interest, wanting to go to school there. And they were really hesitant, obviously, they're outsiders, but it turned out to be a really good thing. There was a Kasha there that was a part of the mission that was just an, a really amazing man and kind of became like a father figure to him. And fast forward a few years, so he was going to public school in Ermia in the region, but he was also going to mission school. Mm. And I want to read, so there was a turning point for him that he writes in his book that starts to lead into eventually his mission. But yeah, I mean, and I feel like I've heard this story from a lot of other Assyrians from the area at the time that mixed reviews on their experiences with the missionaries. So I'm super sensitive to that, that not everybody had a good connection. But in this case, you know, he really felt like they took him under his wing, they helped him get educated. And then he started going out and he was a school teacher at the time too, or, I mean, how can you be doing that? You're like 13 years old. It's just insane. Now, was this in the, with the missionaries that he was? Missionaries. Yeah. So he was still in Iran, Persia at the time, obviously, but forced to grow up really fast, but mature really fast too. I mean, when I was 13, I was certainly not teaching Bible school. Right. You and I both. (laughs) Yeah. So he writes, okay, I'll read this one paragraph that I think is really special. I would also pay visits to the other villages and preach to them in a very simple manner, only repeating to the people the story of the cross. While engaged in this manner one day, I read my Bible, the 12th chapter of Genesis. This gave me much thought, especially the passage where the Lord says to Abraham, get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house into a land that I will show thee. My strain of thought on this matter ran in this channel. If Abraham obeyed this command of the Lord, and I am now worshiping the same Lord as Abraham then was, why should I not follow his example now reading the same command? So like, so simple. That's just where, so that's where it clicked for him. And he started meeting with Akasha and with other missionaries. And actually they didn't want him to leave at first. They were very much against him going to America, starting all of this, but he was determined. He truly felt called by God and which is just amazing. You know, I mean, I feel like me personally, when I read these stories, I'm like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Or, but how hard that must've been at that time. And especially with people that love and respect you telling you, no, don't do this. It's unsafe. And just truly feeling called. I mean, that's just really powerful. Totally. And especially going and visiting an area that you've only heard of, but like, it's just been left at that. You've never had a chance to visit. You have no idea, you know, what, what would come of it or anything like that. So that is amazing. Yeah. So that kind of spurred everything on. I mean, I I wonder how those conversations went with his poor mother. <laughs> but he was 15 at the time. So it's like wow. it was 1889. And he takes a train to Germany to Hamburg and then gets on a steamer ship and comes to NYC. 
So I just love being here too. I'm based in New York. Um, I know that he came through Castle Clinton, which, you know, you hear a lot of stories about Ellis Island. Mm-hmm. And my mom and dad actually, when they visited one year, went to Ellis Island and lo- tried to look for his name. And they were really confused because they couldn't find him anywhere. It turns out that he came through Castle Clinton, which now is just, I think it's like a museum or something. Nobody really goes over there, but it's still there. So I've ridden my bike down there to check it out, which is really special. Just imagine all the people coming through. I geek out over that. But at that time, you had to have 25 US dollars to get in. He had 28 cents to his name. So he waited for a moment when the guards were distracted and there's so many people pouring in and he snuck in underneath and somehow made it through. (laughs) And that's how he got into NYC. That is amazing. And so when he got through to New York, was he going to school in New York? So this is where I'm unclear too. Eventually he gets approval, right, from the mission in Iran to say, okay, you can go to the States. He had some kind of connection there, but he writes, he couldn't find where he was going for three days. He's hungry, he doesn't get anything. He's just wandering around. And he gets connected with like a hostel, a youth hostel on 42nd, which is not that far from me, which is fun. And they help him find work. So it's not super clear. Somehow he figured out a way to make money. And then eventually he did. So he worked on a farm in Patterson, New Jersey for a bit. uh, Did some work in Plainfield, which is like not far from here. But the goal was to go to Moody. So somehow, I'm unclear how long he spent time working. I think it was a couple of years, but eventually he makes his way to Moody Bible. And Moody Bible, for clarification, is is it a church in Chicago? I've seen a church called Moody. It's a church and a school, like a seminary Mm -hmm. in Lincoln Park area. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So eventually he wakes, he makes his way to Moody. He goes to school there. He goes to Grand Rapids and gets a medical degree, casual. So he's just picking up all of this education. And Grand Um, Rapids, Michigan. In Grand Rapids, Michigan. I mean, again, this man's like 16, 17 at the time. Just incredible. But so he's working, he's saving money, connecting with churches here. And eventually he prepares to head back to Ermia to see his family. So I think... From what I can gather, this is like around five years that he's doing this. So he makes his way back. On his way back, he gets picked up by the Turkish government, and they assume that he is a U.S. spy. So he was tortured for, I'm not sure exactly how long, I believe it was a few weeks. And so in the midst of this, he's able to, again, this is just, I'm like, And the way people wrote at the time, too, were very matter of fact. So you're reading this, you're like, okay, casual, what? But this man spends all this time, all this money, is determined to come back. And for his people and his family, he gets picked up by the Turkish government. They think he's a spy because he's coming from the U.S. Despite being tortured and everything, somehow he's able to convince a guard and bribe him somehow. Which, again, I'm unclear. How do you bribe someone without any money? He must have been very charming. But he talks this guard into writing to the U.S. embassy and somehow the U.S. steps in and gets him out. And so he's able to return to Ermia. Wow. Is this the time when he's coming back and then he ends up meeting your great-great-grandmother? 
not yet. Oh, not yet. Okay. 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 So he actually went back and forth seven times. Wow. And think about that journey too. I mean, even now by ship, by seat. Yeah. Even on a plane. I mean, I'm a go-getter, but that's a lot. (laughs) So he makes his way back and this is so amazing. So I've, again, I've heard a lot of these stories. There's actually another instance where my family's had issues with Turkey, but in this case, this is something that I learned. My great uncle, who was my great grandma's son, so my Nana's brother, he and I were chatting this week, just reconnecting before this, jogging my memory. He's the family historian of the generation before us. So we connect on that, but we were chatting and he said, well, you've got to realize that because he was imprisoned, eventually the United States and Isaac sue the Turkish government when, and then he used that money to bring the first group of Assyrians to North Battleford. Wow. That is incredible. I know. Do you know how much it was? No. And I'm dying. I was trying to find, so I'll skip ahead a little bit and we can come back to this, but so I'm connected with Dr. Ruth Kambar. She's amazing. And she, you know, is similar to us. She loves researching all of this. And she'll send me things from time to time when she comes across our family. And a few weeks ago, she sends me this, I don't know, what do you call it? Just this lawsuit, I guess, from Sarah Adams. So from, I was named after my great-great-grandma. So my namesake, she's suing the Turkish government this time on behalf of her family, because unfortunately... They murdered her father after they eventually left, which is another sad story we can dig into. But long story short, or long story long, depending on how you look at it, they had this lawsuit and Ruth is reading about this, sending it to me like, did you know about this? Did your family know about this? We had no idea. And I sent it to my mom and my aunt and they said, I feel like Nana and grandma had no idea about this. And if they did, they just did not speak of it. Now, earlier when you had said that there was like a lord, or I am assuming like an aga of that area, and they raided the area, who was that? Was that the Turks? It was the Turks, and I think there was a group of Kurds, too, that would run through and do raids. Okay. Um, But in the earlier case, so, sorry, I should clarify. That was with, I'm blanking on her maiden name. Grandma Sarah's father was a physician in Ermia. His name was Dr. Israel. Hakim, right? Or Hakim Israel? That sounds right. Oh, yeah. Hakim Israel. Sarah, daughter of the prominent physician Hakim Israel. Yeah. Who's reputed to be the court physician in Iran. Yep. That's him. Okay. 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 So I guess that's my great, great, great grandfather. Mm -hmm. So her, her father yeah. And so we came across that and did she win? She lost that one. And I actually, so Ruth sent oh, me, so this. I just realized, so that was him that got killed. Mm-hmm. Wow. Because, and I'm not sure again, like clearly the area was growing, you know, more unstable by, you know, the days, the weeks, but after they had left, I wonder if that was part of it. If just cause families were leaving there, there's not a lot of, a lot of record of that. But yeah, so he was susceptible to that for some reason. And then Sarah sued the government for damages. They stole their farm and obviously his life. And she lost that because the, yeah, the United States writes out, or I forget whoever, whoever's making the argument says that there's just insufficient evidence, which again is, it's very obvious, but the loopholes, whatever you call it, it's just another instance of 
what's happening then, but still happening today. And it's just, mm-hmm. it's incredibly sad. It's so layered. It's insane to just read about that and then to see how that's still happening. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when he comes back, you had mentioned he was done with college and he was done with medical school at that time. Mm-hmm. And he went back to Iran or so Persia. He comes back to Persia and they win that first lawsuit and he's got this money now. And so that's when he starts rounding up families to get out. So this is really fun or it's just interesting how history plays out. The plan was always to go to Turlock. They had a connection there through the mission. The climate was comparable to Persia at the time. That was always the plan, but something fell through with purchasing the land or something legally. There was a delay and they were just ready to get out of there and Canada opened their arms to them and they were able to purchase land in North Battleford. But it's funny or ironic because, so my uncle Doug tells the story. He says, I think maybe not in bad faith, but he was like, I think that they were tricked because North Canada is quite a different climate than Persia or Turlock. So, you know, in some of their diaries, they write about how cold it is and how they had no idea and they weren't prepared. But again, the sacrifices and just dealing with this new land, dealing with that new climate. So after they get ready, there's 60 families then that make that trip back. And a fun fact is, so they go, they take the train to Germany again and they board a vessel promptly called the Assyria. And then they had their had their way to Canada. I got I got goosebumps hearing that. As I was telling you when I was reading about this, I learned that one of Dr. Isaac's sons named one of his daughters Assyria. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that's really cool. So they hopped on a on a on a ship named Assyria and they they made their way to Canada. Yep. And so now for clarification, or I guess from a geographical perspective, North Battlefield is in the province of Saskatchewan, which is in the, it's a, what considered Western or West Canada. Right. So I forget exactly where they dock, but then they have to travel by ox cart the whole way to make it there. So it was still a few weeks after spending what, three to four weeks in the ship too. And so they finally make it there and they settle. They have a really hard winter, but they make it. And then they were approached after some time by, I guess it was the the city saying, hey, we want to buy a hospital here. You own this land. So then, again, just how these things play out, Isaac made the choice to sell that land to the city and the hospital that's there in North Battlefield today, that's exactly where the site was. So the hospital is still there. It still stands. The hospital is still there. It still stands. But then he took that money and decided it was time to try to go to Turlock again. So I think it was about half of, so there were 60 families that came over. About 30 of them decided to make the trip again. The rest just didn't feel like moving. And, you know, it's amazing to see the Canadian Assyrian community today. And yeah, those 30 families, then they got their their horse and buggy, if you will, and they made their way to California. Now, do you know anything or does he write in um, his books about anything regarding those 60 families and how he was able to convince them at that time? Because I'd imagine on one end, it's like 
the it's it's like an excitement but also fear of i'm sure they've heard certain positive things about america and that being kind of like a dream vision but at the same time i mean you've kind of established and you've lived your life in a certain area for so long and i i could imagine that that was also scary to absolutely you know kind of uproot yourself and go somewhere not knowing where you're going to end up but at the same time kind of being in that very assyrian thing where you're going as a group it's not from like an in individual type of immigration it's like you're going as a group so if something happens to you you've got others that are willing to to mm -hmm. step in and and be there for you he he does write about that actually he says you know, it, it was kind of not strange, but that at the time, you know, you wanted to travel in a community, you weren't doing things individually. So he doesn't go into detail, at least from what I've read about. Yeah, I'm sure people were hesitant to leave. I mean, for example, his father in law chose not to leave. But it seems like with the unrest in the area, people were ready to just find a place where they could settle down and be safe and just live their lives peacefully. Um, and unfortunately, just yeah, our homeland wasn't that at the time. Or no, and I, I'm scrolling back through. I mean, I've got my book all marked up. I'm sure. I'm sure it was mixed. And then there were definitely a few different voyages, if you will. So maybe people felt like if they didn't go at first, they would see how things panned out, and then they would come along. I mean, there was definitely there's three or four, I believe. What do you know in terms of life in North Battlefield while they were there? I know from what I read that, yeah, that it was hard. They were happy to have their own land, but it got very cold very fast. So that, it's funny. I mean, that's what a lot of the notes are about, just writing about, oh my gosh, it's so cold. I can't handle this. I can't grow cabbage. That's that specified Grandma Sarah saying that, which I thought was cute because I love cabbage too. But yeah, just talking about the terrain, but people were very open to them being there, which I love to see. Just the Canadians welcome them with open arms, were very supportive, and then still to this day honor that legacy and that the people came over. They love the Assyrian community there still today. There was a centennial a few years back that actually my family traveled up for. And oh, if, that's amazing. If you go to the church up there, you'll see stained glass windows that I could pull it up. I have a photo with verses in them that my great grandma Clara donated in honor of her parents at the centennial. So they're still in the church today. But yeah, in short, I mean, the, the Canadians were amazing and they were really they helped the Assyrians be there, but they didn't expect them to assimilate or just, you know, they let them live peacefully and live as themselves, which I think is super important. Yeah, I remember reading somewhere where Canada, like you were mentioning, things didn't exactly pan out with California initially, but Canada welcomed them with open arms and mm wasn't discriminating with regards to creed color anything anything like that so it made it made the coming to kind of comfortable in that sense uh, or that's the the sense that I got yeah absolutely which rings true today too you were saying that before they continued to make their way into California that some of the families decided to stay behind if mm -hmm. i was reading correctly i was it that a couple of Dr. Isaac's brothers that ended up staying behind? Check you out, Adessa. Yes. 
So I believe all of them stayed, at least at that point. There might have been one, Paul John, either came initially or eventually to Turlock. But yeah, you're right. They decided to stay with their families. They were comfortable. They just didn't feel like moving again. Um, yeah, they. Were, I remember reading like they just weren't sure that life was going to be better there. So they weren't going to upgrade, which like I can totally understand. I mean, if you're already making such a huge move from Iran to Canada and you're like, oh, gosh, there's no telling like that things will get better. Mm -hmm. you know, move to California. I could totally understand that. Yeah, I was seeing I was reading like. He had better luck with Canadian immigration officials whose government's policy was to settle and develop Western Canada into a major wheat and cereal producing region in the country and did not discriminate against immigrants of a different creed or a country. So he installed two settlements, one in the North Battlefield in 1903 and then the other in 1907. So that would be two different settlements. Okay. I wasn't clear on that because I'm just familiar with North Battleford. And now when did they, um, do you recall the year that they made their way to Turlock? I believe it was 1905, at least one of the, one of the first ones. Okay. Because, so he sells, he sells that land to Canada for the hospital. And then the 30 or so families make their way there. I actually, I believe, yeah, I believe it was 1905. Cause then the way he writes his book is funny too. I mean, he's probably just stream of consciousness, but he talks about that. And then there's a note in here about how he was certified by the New Jersey Medical Board in 1901. So he kind of skips around with the timeline. But my grandma Clara was born in 1910 in New York City on their way back from Persia at the, the second time. So again, poor grandma Sarah is pregnant on the steamer with Clara. And the second they land, it's time to come out. So I mean, it's just incredible that experience. Absolutely. I mean, even if we were to consider that now, there's there's challenges with that. So imagine then and the minimal advancements that we had at that time. Mm. Now, when he came over, was he, he had his medical degree. Was he practicing medicine? Because I had also read that he was uh, like, he served as like a real estate. He was like a real estate agent too when he was in <laughs> California. So he gets his medical degree, comes back to Persia that first time. Mary Sarah comes back to Canada, heads back to Persia, comes back, decides to go to Turlock. They're in Turlock. Yeah, so he's practicing medicine. I thought he did in Ermia a little bit. Maybe it was just assisting either his father-in-law or, you know, whoever was the physician in town. But he was practicing when he was in Turlock. And then a fun fact that I learned from my uncle the other day, too, that I hadn't heard. He said in the early 1900s, there was only two phones in the whole of Turlock. One of them was the mayor's and one of them was Grandpa Isaac's. Wow. How did that come to be? Just he was the physician, right? So making oh. calls, having to be connected. But he was a real estate agent as well. So that was important for him that his people had land. And so he was very helpful with negotiating, you know, with California and with the government, making sure that they had space to live comfortably. He was kind of a farmer. It sounded more of like a hobby, but, you know, and my grandma would tell these stories too, that they had lime trees, lemon trees, figs, just everywhere, and grapes, as far as I could see um, on their land, that that was just super important to them to keep that little bit of home. But they loved and California. then they... 
And when they had migrated, who was there? Who who was in Turlock at that time? So yeah, the 30 or so families, or do you mean from my family? No, outside of Assyrians, like what other settlers were living there at that time? I'm not sure who else at the time. It was it was very lightly populated. I read that there were, it was, especially in, in Turlock in particular, that it was the Swedes and the Portuguese, where like the Swedes were the merchants at the time there, and the Portuguese were in the like dairy business, and Assyrians wow. were the ones that specialized in vineyards. So they all kind of had their, mm-hmm. their like category of work that they would each do. I didn't know about the Portuguese. That's cool. Yeah, I knew there yeah. was some Scandinavian and even from a very early time if you even just look at Turlock's Wikipedia page it talks about Little Ermia and that Assyrians made up like a significant percentage of the population which is just awesome yeah now I know I read that there was also um, an Assyrian evangelical church that was built there in 1924 but that it wasn't so much the it didn't matter that it was associated with a particular denomination. It was just they wanted it to be a non-denominational church to mm-hmm. which all Assyrians could belong. And so I think that was the first one that was set up there where anybody, regardless of what their like, you know, Christian denomination mm-hmm. was, could feel at home there. Yeah, I know that there were a ton he was very passionate and he did this every time he came back to Persia too, about setting up churches where he could. Yeah. I honestly, there's so many that, and then too, actually something else that I've read through my studies that at one point, the highest percentage like per capita of churches was in Turlock. Oh, wow. (laughs) But yeah, I can't keep track. It's interesting. I don't know why exactly they made the choice to not, be there, but eventually they planted themselves at Carter Memorial Church, which I believe was a Presbyterian church. Mm, okay. That was later in life. It sounds like he was involved in all of them or most of them to some capacity, but maybe that was his connection with the Presbyterian mission. I'm not sure. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Now, I remember reading also that similar to what you're saying with him being a real estate agent, that anybody that was coming in, he would kind of be one of the main people that would help them with like mm-hmm. finding the right land, helping them settle, helping them kind of feel uh, accustomed to right. finding everything, jobs. finding jobs. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, he was really ahead of his time. I mean, by no means did he have to take on this responsibility because it was a huge one. I mean, he essentially ended up serving as the leader of the Assyrian people there because, you know, there was so much that was taken under his wing, whether it be him leading the migration to then having a sense of responsibility to ensure that the people that are there are, you know, comfortable and are thriving I, I find that to be very admirable because again, he could, he was a physician, he was a real estate agent at that time. I mean, he could have very well just kept to him and his family mm-hmm. and just concentrated on them and, you know, ensuring that they're good to go and, you know, living the American dream and just continuing to flourish. Uh, in addition to that, it was this kind of undertaking of, ensuring that really our people there were 
settled and we're in a good position to thrive. Mm -hmm. I know it's incredible. And as you read it too, I mean, he truly felt called by God to do that and not in a, I mean, at least from what I read, you know, not in a self-serving way where I'm going to be the leader, you know, God has called me to this, but he truly was so humbled by how he felt the Lord was calling his people to a different life and how he wanted to be a part of serving them and, and of making sure that, you know, Assyrians were living and had their rights, had their dignity. I mean, he was just very passionate about his family and his God and his people, which just blows my mind. I mean, and even at the intro for the book too, I can bring it up and read it in a little, but he just talks about, you know, I have no interest in life other than serving God and serving my people, which wow. is just really very admirable, honestly. Something that I had um, read to, I, I, I'll stop after saying this, but I, I think it's kind of in, in accordance to what we were talking about right now with just making sure that people were kind of feeling settled and, and comfortable mm -hmm. where they're at. In uh, Dr. Ariani Shaya's book, she interviewed somebody who had said that if a new immigrant wanted to buy credit, uh, so mm -hmm. wanted to buy land on credit and give mm -hmm. Dr. Adams' name as a reference, he always endorsed such people's signatures. And mm -hmm. one time, 80 Assyrian refugees were stranded in Seattle, mm -hmm. and there was no one to sponsor them so that they could be released. And so Dr. Adams dressed like a millionaire and went over and introduced himself as like a man of means. And so they sponsored him <laughs> along with the person that I had accompanied uh -huh. had sponsored all of those refugees and they were released. And I'm mm -hmm. assuming those refugees ended up coming to, to California and settling right. in Herlock. But again, like this kind of just, it's, it's just an example of his character and mm -hmm. the type of person he was like, I, I'm so, um, I don't know. I I'm like, I have no words for it because it's such a huge undertaking, like we were saying, and for him to, to do that and it seemed like happily was yeah. amazing and he really changed the trajectory of assyrians in in california and i guess assyrians in general kind of moving into the united states at that point because that was the first big migration mm -hmm. he was an amazing man and he didn't want any credit for it at all you know he just it, it was his duty and he felt like he had the means and the ideas to help make it happen. And there were many others, obviously, you know, that he worked with, he didn't do it alone, that supported the same mission, but definitely took it upon himself to make sure that he was following, you know, what he felt like was the call of God and that he was serving his people and his family. I mean, it's funny too. And as I get older too, I, I'm sure you feel the same, right, with family stories, but you hear these things growing up and I, I don't know how to verbalize it, but I always just thought that was normal. And as I'm getting older now, I'm just like, okay, I mean, yes, we all have amazing stories, but this man was not normal. <laughs> you know, exceptional. <laughs> exceptional. And, and my grandma too, his daughter was, he was just an amazing person. And I don't know, it's just big shoes to fill. Does he write anything in his books about if there was anything appealing or daunting about Western culture for the Assyrian migrants from his perspective of him, you know, going to school there, but then later on settling in the U.S.? 
Did you come across any mentions of anything where maybe he was either discriminated or given a hard time for him being from Persia and being an Assyrian? He does write about discrimination in Iran and in Turkey, not so much in the U.S. and Canada, not to say that that didn't happen, but I wonder if he was just so relieved to have a new, you know, life ahead of him, but he does write about himself feeling confused when he sees other people that, you know, Germans, like he writes about, um, they had really light eyes and light hair or encountering black people for the first time. He writes, I was really confused and I felt rude because I was staring and then I realized no one else was staring. So I assumed it was normal, which again, is just such like a, I don't know, childlike, pure almost way to write. It's just, yeah. So he, he writes about being confused, meeting other people. He writes a little bit about, so also I should have mentioned earlier throughout this time, he's constantly on, I guess, speaking tours and he's going to different churches and dressing up in traditional Assyrian costume, telling his stories, talking about Persia, talking about Assyrians, talking about Assyrian Christianity. And as he's dressed up, I think he does, now that you mention it, he mentions in the book a little bit some of, it, it wasn't necessarily discrimination, but how people, Americans were very curious and would make silly comments, just being confused about his costume or the way he, he would speak. Well, I, I could imagine two things probably helped with his situation. And for many of them that were coming at that time, for one, I could imagine his name helped in terms of having Isaac Adams as a name. It wasn't something that kind of stood out too much. And, but at the same time, I could imagine that with his experience with the missionaries in, in Urmi, that there was a bit of understanding in terms of the English language that also they, he might've learned a little bit in terms of just the, the way of life or like the mm-hmm. customs, kind of the American customs mm-hmm. that might've helped. But in terms of that costume situation that you're talking about, I read that, I read that. So he knew that there was in the West, there was a fascination with things exotic, quote unquote exotic. So he traveled through North America on a 45 day lecture tour dressed in his picturesque native costumes, speaking on the culture of the Persians and the traditions of the Muslims and Christians. He sold photographs of himself in traditional costumes and raised money with, Mm -hmm. he opened mission schools in various Assyrian villages when he returned to the old country. Mm -hmm. Like to me, I think I I find that to be so great because rather than the way that I understand that is like he takes his experience as a form of strength and like who he is and his culture Mm -hmm. as a strength, trying rather than trying to hide away from it. Mm-hmm. like hey well if people are so interested yeah and if people are so interested about this all right like let's make it an opportunity yeah, where sure. we can collect money and we can give it back to Assyrians back then when I was interviewing an elderly gentleman Narcy David a couple of weeks ago for the podcast he had also mentioned how his uncle when he came to the Midwest that he he had done a tour with the more prominent uh, furniture companies there and they advertised it as like uh, exotic Persian rug from the Middle East or Middle East Persian rug like expert Mike David comes into the Midwest and so I fi- it's it's really cool how they kind of took these opportunities to be like all right well if people are curious let's let's entertain their curiosity and make something of it 
Absolutely. They didn't stop with, I love just anything that life threw at them. Very entrepreneurial. Just it kind of, as you read this, just get knocked down, get right back up. I mean, I love it. It's so inspiring. I know. And yeah, just they didn't care to be different. They were very proud of who they were. And right. Why would I not capitalize that and serve people if I have? Now tell me a little bit about your family once they had settled into Turlock. Who were Dr. Isaac's and Sarah's sons, daughters? Mm -hmm. So they still, it seems like they went back and forth a few more times, still back to Ermia to visit their families. And that at during one of those trips, you know, they learned that. So Isaac's mom had passed away while he was gone during one of the times. And then Sarah's father had passed. So most of the family was either in Canada or Turlock at the time. And as they began to settle, so they had eight children. I mean... I have a photo here that I can send to you. They're all very handsome. But John, Albert, Arthur, Clarence, Edward, Henry, who went by Hank, and he actually only died only died a few years ago. And before he passed, there was an Assyrian festival for, I believe it was for Akitu, where he was featured in the newspaper in Turlock. So I believe he was the last of their family just a couple of years ago, which is crazy. And then two daughters to think of all those brothers, my grandma, Clara and her younger sister, Florence. And wow. they love being in California. So my grandma talks about growing up in the vineyards. It's funny how they eventually lived in Chicago, which I'll touch on in a bit, but she felt like she was a farm girl. She loved California. She loved being there. She was a tomboy. She played baseball and basketball and was the captain, which again, I think it's so fascinating too at that time, like how old, maybe 1920, and she's just like running all these sports teams, yeah. running around like crazy, which is so awesome. Um, really, she took after her father and she was definitely a daddy's girl. But when she was older, enter in my great grandpa, Joel. So we talked about this the other day a little bit when we were connecting, but so I'm going to, again, I don't speak. So for all the listeners, I'm sorry if I'm butchering these village names. But um, so the John family comes from or John, they changed their name, which pivoting a little bit. I have wondered if Adams is actually our family name. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure when it got changed. He does not talk about that at all. Mm-hmm. He just talks about I was born Isaac Adams. So either it was his parents, maybe or the generation before that. But I've wondered about that. Maybe though, I mean, a lot of that's a, that's a Christian name and Abrahamic name. So anyways, but so enter the John family too. They grew up and lived in Ermia and also Alwa, which was Northern. And as they, so my great grandpa was born in Persia. My great grandma was born in Turlock or sorry, NYC, and then grew up in Turlock. And he had heard about this amazing daughter of this man that loved Assyrians. And he was in Chicago at the time. He had just graduated from dentistry school and his parents were pressuring him to find a wife. And they said, okay, well, if you don't like anyone here, why don't you just, there's an amazing community of Assyrians in Turlock, go spend some time out there, see if you like anybody. And within a week they fell in love, which is just insane to think about. He went out, he hit it off with the family. He stayed out there for, I think it was three months, but this man drove himself alone in 
I believe it was 19, 1927 or 1928. Wow. So think about the condition of the roads at the time. I think he writes in his journal that gas was like 10 cents a gallon, how he hates the roads, how he's so crabby, like this better be worth it. It's just kind of funny. I mean, <laughs> people are the same no matter what year they live in. But so he shows up in Turlock and meets Clara and they just, yeah, they fall in love and decide it's a done deal. But Grandpa Isaac was originally against this because he didn't want her to leave and go back. And he had a turning point when his wife, Grandma Sarah, said, well, remember how I left Ermia and I left my family there to come with you to the state. So, you know, Claire has found a good man. He loves her. He loves God. I think we need to support this. So reading that, I thought it was very endearing, but also just a classic dad, you know, leave. So and it was cool, though. I mean, think about how far that was in the time, but they made a really good effort to still see each other. You know, they would come out to Chicago and go back and forth. But so they made their way back to Chicago and they got married in Turlock before, make their way back. My grandpa Joel shows up with his new bride. He's excited to introduce her to his family and they walk in and in the bottom. So they lived in this two flat in Albany Park in Chicago and everybody's dressed in black. They're really sad. Everybody's circling around, you know, people are crying and he's very confused. And so he walks into this and my grandma too, you know, just walking into this new family and go upstairs and they find out that his younger sister had died while they were on their way back, but they didn't want to tell them since they were newlyweds. So that was the start of their marriage. And my grandma's walking in and there's all these, you know, grieving Assyrians, people that she doesn't know. And that was the start of their marriage. So just a different day and age. And, um, and Clara is your grandmother? Clara is my great grandmother. Great grandmother. Yeah, she was born in 1910 in Turlock and she passed in Chicago in 2011 when I was 19, almost 20. So I grew up with her. I grew up that on the- made her how old when she passed away? She was just shy of 101. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. That mm -hmm. is a long lived life. I know. I could only be so lucky. And, and she lived with you? So she lived in the same house, which is actually another fun family story um, where the Johns come into play. But so I'll back up a little bit. They, they walk in this two flat, right? With their family. So- one of the flats and the Johns had built that house. So my great, great grandma, or sorry, great, great grandfather on the other side was a Mason. A lot of Assyrians were Masons that had come over from Ermi and they built these businesses together, which is actually, I just love that. I mean, I'm from the Chicago area and again, growing up, spending so much time with my Nana and with her mom would always be saying, well, Assyrians built Chicago. Chicago's an Assyrian city, you know? <laughs> Which is very generous, but they weren't wrong. So they were very proud of their neighborhoods and of these brick bungalows. I mean, you're familiar with this city. Think about, you know, the north side near Loyola, the workers' cottages, the bungalows. I mean, they're beautiful. They're classic. But every time we'd be driving around, Nana, Assyrians built that. I can tell. <laughs> so, Love it. So they built this two flat. And yeah, so Grandma Clara comes back and she has to live with her in-laws. They live in this flat together with his sister, Anne, who I can touch on in a little bit too. She's got a cool story. But 
and they're living in, it's a two flat. They're all living in the one upstairs because they're renting the bottom for income. So she lives with her in-laws for 10 years. Wow. She was a saint. She left her family. I mean, I love them and I love my family and I love my in-laws, but that would be tough. So she starts her family life, you know, she moves in with the Johns and they were very close. And after 10 years, then the family below moves out so they can finally move downstairs. And this was, if you're familiar with Albany Park, it was on Karlov and um, near Lawrence and near the park over there. And so that's where my Nana grew up with her two younger brothers. And eventually then in the 50s, um, Clara's father-in-law, my grandpa Joel's father, who was the Mason, built them a house two streets over on Costner. And that's where, yeah, they lived out. So my uncles, my great uncles grew up there. My Nana got married and that's where my grandma Claire and grandpa Joel lived until they died. They both died in that house. Wow. Mm -hmm. that's amazing. And what happened to the other, um, other family members? those that were back in California. Yeah. So did a they, lot of those remain and settle in Turlock or did they make their way to other cities? To my knowledge, at least at that time, all of them stayed in Turlock other than Grandma Clara. So, but I think it was really beautiful too. They made an effort to visit Chicago as much as they could. She would go back to California all the time, which, you know, is amazing even today, but with the transportation back then just shows how close their family was and how much they loved each other. Yeah. But yeah. And my grandma, Sarah, I forget how old she was when she passed away, but she lived a really long life. Isaac died in 1942. He was 70 on June 4th. So we're nearing that almost, I believe if my math's right, 79 years, right. Um, to the day almost, which is incredible. But yeah, my grandma Sarah would, um, she would make her way to Chicago. My Nana was living in San Diego actually at the time after she got married because my poppy was in the Navy. And so I remember when Nana was pregnant with my mom, grandma Sarah came down, they have photos with her because she wanted to meet Amy, but my mom didn't come out on time. So she, she barely, she met her when she was in my Nana's tummy, but they made an effort, which I just think was so cool. Wow. What else? What else? What else do you know? I think it's important too to talk about because, you know, we're skimming over this, but almost every time that Isaac would go back to Persia, he would get picked up by either the Turks or the Kurds and he would just have to be creative, either having money on hand or with some kind of story making his way out. But, you know, and again, he writes in through his book. I mean, he takes credit from a creative perspective, but then he says, God really guided me. God looked after me. God looked after our people to make sure that I could keep running back and forth. But that's right, because they made the mass migration prior to the the 1915 genocide. Mm -hmm. So they were a lot of those, you know, those 60 families. And then whoever ended up coming mm -hmm. afterwards were sort of saved from that opportunity years before that had happened. Mm -hmm. And so in a way, I mean, the impact is even greater for the migration that happened because had those mm -hmm. families been there, you know, we don't really know what their fate would have been. Right. And we wouldn't be here today telling these stories. So it's really sobering to think about it from that perspective it's important i mean you and i take a personal interest in this and I'll, same with a lot of others but 
even to take it a step further, I mean, this history is important because it does affect us today, even if it feels like it was 50, 100, 150 years ago. It's just the choices that we make matter. And yeah, they they span a millennia, generations to come. So yeah, on one of the trips coming back to, he writes that he brought 36 Assyrians at one point to Canada. And so he actually maps out. So they go from Persia through Turkey, through Israel to Germany, and then to Halifax. And then almost immediately after one of those turns back to bring another group over. And all through that time too. Yeah. So he gets married in 1906. He's writing this first book so he can sell this book and make some money to keep these missions going. And then every time he goes back and forth, he keeps hearing about further persecutions from Kurds. And then he writes to that on one of the second or third trips, he brings 55 people at that time. You know, he's newly married, his wife is pregnant. I mean, just really being dedicated to that and following that through that could not have been easy. Absolutely not. Do you know what the range was in terms of years, like, or when maybe the last year was that he ended up doing the back and forth? I'm skimming, skimming my, my, my long notes here. I believe that the last time that he went back to Persia was in 1910. So right before the genocide. Wow. I mean, obviously, a lot was happening there, but leading up to this. And then from that point, it was just back and forth between Canada. Yeah, Canada and Sherlock. Selling real estate, buying real estate, sending money home. I think a big part of that too, like I mentioned earlier, so after his mom had passed, and then I'm wondering if what happened to Hakim, you know, was part of the genocide, because that was in 1915. That's when there was the last record of him. So unfortunately, it's not, it is documented, but isn't documented. You know what I mean? I see. And so, I mean, like even the migration and, and going back and forth, I mean, a lot of props have to, has to be given to his wife, Sarah, as well, because I mean, she was in for the ride and especially for one of the times being pregnant, like that's, that's just not easy mm -hmm. in general. And so I think props to her too, for being a real trooper mm -hmm. and being like, all right, we're, if. If we're going through this, we're going through this together. Mm -hmm. So much, so much could have happened, you know, in, in that process. And thankfully they were able to come back and be able to, to settle and, and live a life for themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And once they settled too, I mean, I'm sure they rested, but it sounds like they were very busy and very active in the community. And from all things that I've read, it seems like they had a very loving and caring relationship too, which is just beautiful. I mean, you think, how long do you date at that time? I mean, in some people, maybe for a while, but at least in the case of my great great grandma and my great grandma, I mean, it was pretty quick and just being committed and seeing it through and truly loving each other. You grow, grow together in marriage really fast. Yeah. What else? What else about their story stands out to you that you feel called to, to share? I think, too, like I was mentioning earlier, just growing up with. So I come from a Christian family on both sides, on both my mom and dad's side. But, you know, since we're talking about my mother's side of the family today, naturally, my dad is not a Syrian. My last name is Bennett. <laughs> but both of them have really strong faith upbringings in different ways. The Adams and the Johns were very stern 
but they really, really served God. And again, like I was touching on earlier, you grow up in that kind of environment and, you know, you think, oh, this is normal or, you know, this is traditional, but even, yeah, like as I get older and really start to understand their experiences and the stories that they made sure that they told every Sunday and every time we were together, they really were proud of being Assyrians and proud of being Christians. And no matter where they were in the world, they wanted everybody to know that the good that they had in their life came from God and that they just wanted to love people and lead them to Jesus, which I, yeah, I just, I love that. You had mentioned in our, in our call that we had earlier this week that for each, each generation has had one person that has kind of served as, you know, the family's historian. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, within your generation, you have kind of taken on that role. What does that mean to you? And, and why is it important to you? Yeah, that's a layered question. I don't know. I've always felt this responsibility and maybe it was because I did get to spend so much time. And I mean, shout out to my mom. You know, she made sure that we were seeing our family a lot. She made sure that we were going to grandma's, that we were spending time. And I don't know. I think I just have always felt called and like a responsibility to tell these stories. Now, does that make you a fifth generation Assyrian American? I think I'm technically a third. Or a third. Okay. Yeah. Which I know. And it's so interesting. And that's another conversation. But I've gone through periods where, like I was saying, I mean, we would talk about the stuff always growing up, but then it gets lost in translation kind of because so my mom doesn't speak and my Nana could understand. But for whatever reason, my, my grandma Clara and grandpa Joel, they would speak it at home, but it doesn't seem like they made a point to, to teach it. And, you know, I, there's a lot of discussion in our community about that, why that was, but I think they did want to fit in, not to speak for them. And I wonder if that wasn't intentional. It just kind of happened. Mm -hmm. um, but that being said, you know, so from a cultural perspective, and then even as we think about identity, I mean, growing up, I always felt connected to this, but then I felt a little bit of imposter syndrome, if you will, because not speaking, you know, not growing up in that area. And then as you know, I mentioned my dad isn't a Syrian, but he feels very connected to our family, obviously. And he had a ton of respect for my grandma and for everyone. And we've spent a lot of time in Turkey for various reasons. But I do remember growing up, it's kind of just been an interesting, not like a mystery unfolding, but getting familiar with my story and Maybe I'm not doing a good job of laying it out right. I'm thinking out loud, but I've always felt very connected to our community and to my family, but I didn't always know exactly where that plugged in or where it would come from. And I don't know how to describe, but you just feel it, right? And when the first time I went to Turkey, I remembered that feeling and feeling confused and then feeling feelings of, you know, are we Turkish? Are we Persian? What does it mean to be a Syrian? And growing up too, you know, my mom would pick me up in school and everyone, oh, is your mom Italian? Is your mom Mexican? Is your mom Puerto Rican? Like, oh, you know, do you come from similar communities to me? And then feeling very proud to say, oh no, she's a Syrian. And what does that mean? You know, we've all had that conversation. 
And when you're younger, I think my my go-to was, well, have you seen VeggieTales Jonah? Yes. Assyrians. Sometimes that's what you need to make the connection, right? Like you have to connect them with something that they might be familiar with. And yeah, Mm -hmm. (laughs) funny, funny, but yeah. And there's lots of spinoff conversations that follow that, but I don't know. I think a big, I've just been, I've been very proud and I've, I've felt very connected. I love my family very much, but also just really curious and trying to understand what that means for me, what that means for us. And then like a lot of other people, I think too, especially this day and age, have mixed ethnicities, if you will, mixed backgrounds. And and then tap on top of that, I mean, as an American, you know, that's not an ethnicity. So growing up here, I don't know, it's just a lot to process, but I feel really passionate about continuing to unpack that and then supporting our community in whatever way I can. I'd love to be a part of that. When I hear your story, when I hear your passion and your level of connection to your family story and your heritage, your Syrian heritage, I can't help but to think how unique that is. Because for all of the people that I have met who have been even one generation removed, can really see that level of not just assimilation, but this kind of, I'm a Syrian, but like, and I leave it at that. There's Mm -hmm. nothing to entertain about that. There's nothing to connect to that. It's just, this is a part of who I am. And I don't really, I don't nurture it because time has passed, you know, time has passed and people move on and it just doesn't serve as an important identity, which is fine. I mean, people, every person experiences things in a different way. When I hear your situation, I find that so unique that after three generations that there is still this really strong love and connection and listeners can't see you right now, but you got teary eyed when I asked you about you being your 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 families or your generation's historian. Oh, I know. I'm so glad this isn't a video interview. <laughs> That's what I'm I'm working to unpack, I guess, for some reason. From a young age, I've always felt super connected and yeah, like a an urgency and a responsibility to unpack this, yes, for myself, but to tell the world about it. And I find myself getting frustrated with sometimes a lack of, I don't know, interest, which is totally, I mean, Obviously, that's okay. But you know what I mean? Sometimes it's like, or even with family members who I love very much, like even they they are supportive. But one of them told me recently, because I was joking too with this isn't the one that said this to me, but a different cousin had said, you know, when you had approached me to do this, he was like, well, oh, yeah, of course, you'd be all over that. Like, you're only sending us, you know, this information as you uncover it. But another had said to me recently, as we were just processing and sharing with each other, you know, she said, I've been hearing you, but I don't think, or she said, I've been listening to you, but I don't think I've been hearing you. So I think it just clicks for all of us at different levels. And another conversation, and I'm not an expert in this area, but my, so my dad's a psychologist and he'll tell you too, that we do have a biological connection to these stories. And like, even for example, again, not a doctor, but it's proven that when your grandma goes through something traumatic, like the cells that you make up you and me and our mom are already in her body. So, I mean, even from that perspective, I would love to, maybe I'll go to grad school to study, study something like that, but we're so connected. And even 
if something had gone wrong, if the ship would have sunk that Isaac was on, I mean, I literally wouldn't be here. My mom, my grandma, it's just the domino effect. The human story is just fascinating, but I'm going off on a tangent. Yeah, I could not tell you. I mean, I think it was just, like I said, and, and this is really important to my mom too. I know she's always been very passionate about sharing her family story, but then she's been very proud to be a Syrian, but you know, life gets in the way of all of us. So she and I are kind of now back on this mission of figuring out whatever small role we can play in supporting our community, but also sharing Isaac's story because it is so important and just has affected, you know, Assyrian history, our family history, but American history, Canadian history. I mean, the choices we make are important. So I don't know, that was a ramble, but that's just what comes to mind. I think probably why it's so important is just spending time. I mean, um, what's that what's that one personality test the the love languages or whatever yeah maybe that's not a personality test but mine is totally quality of time or quality time and we would go over there all the time and just sit in the front room and her house was like a museum I mean there's a Syrian teacups everywhere and she was the historian of her time too so she would have a camera and she would take so many photos like even I remember being younger annoyed like stop trying to make me pose for a photo like stop going on and on about this and then it's cute to see too you know my dad is definitely that person now he's always got his phone out he's always posting on Facebook and sometimes you're like but then I have to laugh because I'm absolutely that person always taking pictures now I actually have my grandma's old Polaroid which is fun but I don't know maybe just being fostered in that environment or observing that and having just so much respect you just you pick it up and it becomes a part of you it's amazing that you say that because I, I think of my grandparents when I when I hear you in that way. Like I think seeing physical like symbolisms, yeah. um, artifacts, those kind of things kind of stay with your memory. And mm -hmm. I know when I go into my grandparents' home, it's kind of like going into an Assyrian museum. You see all of these different things, especially in my grandfather's office space. Like he's got so many different things. And I remember even being a kid and just looking around and being like, oh my goodness. Like, and then as I got older, it's like, how can you not feel a connection to this? It's one yeah, thing, like yeah. they share stories all the time and that's one thing, right? So it's like storytelling, but then you see all of these visual components too that kind of bring these, this story and, and segments of what they talk mm -hmm. about to life. And mm -hmm. then, you know, those kind of things just stay with you. They're, they're memories. They do. They do for sure. And then too, I want to know, I mean, I talk a lot about how he was a minister and my family's faith, but I think whether people align with that or not, you know, it, it doesn't matter. I think just pursuing what you feel called to in life and sticking to it is, is really important and reflecting on that. And because I have my own faith journey and processing what that means to me too, and how to live that out. But when I look at the life that they lived, it was just very evident that that they were being led by, by faith and that they stuck to it even when it wasn't easy. So I'm just, that weighs on me and got to figure out how to follow that call as well. It's always a work in progress. I'm sure. <laughs> I usually like to ask the guest, you know, we have listeners from all over the world. There's something that you would like to say to them. What would that be? I think for me coming from you know, not 100% Assyrian background. If there's anybody else, A, that has that same 
perspective, I would just say if you're passionate about your heritage and your family and your community, to lean into that, to not feel like you have to, or yes, for Assyrians, but for anybody. I mean, I'm clearly just very passionate about family and the same goes for my dad's side of the family. I mean, where we come, we all come from somewhere. I would, I would lean into that. And I think that's important. So whether you're 5%, 10%, 100%, you you still come from somewhere and your story is important. The people that come before you and the sacrifices that they made are important. So even just telling their stories are, is a way to honor that legacy. So call your grandmas, call your mom. But yeah, I think that, and then mem memories are sacred. That's, that's my favorite saying lately. So in whatever way that means to you, whether it's from an Assyrian perspective or just personally with your family, I would just encourage everybody to celebrate that heritage and those stories and really take the time to dig in because it's important. And whether it's just you and I connecting today or whether it's when you run into a coffee shop and somebody decides to ask you where you're from, you know, to be proud and to honor that. And yeah, because... A, because it's important, and B, because there's a lot of people that have taken a lot of effort to try to make sure we don't say those things. So that's something that sticks out to me recently, or maybe not recently, but like I was telling you previously, how growing up feeling, okay, I don't understand. Are we Turkish? Are we Persian? Are we this? Just really coming to that moment, we are Assyrian, and this is why that's important. So I just think that's really beautiful. I would encourage people to keep shouting it from the rooftops. Awesome. Thank you so much, Sarah. I, I really appreciate this. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to share it out to two or three people. We'd really appreciate it. We're also looking for new hosts in areas that we don't currently have hosts. So if you are interested in being a host for your respective country, give us a shout at info at Thanks and see you next week.